Romans chapter 5, the first verse of this chapter simply says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been speaking for some weeks now about the topic of justification by faith alone. And this is one of the great texts that we use in proving the doctrine of justification and what that actually entails. In our shorter catechism, the question is asked, what is justification? The answer is a beautiful answer. It's a very simple answer, but it's also profound. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification, that is the pardon of our sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness or the accounting of it to our name is enjoyed by means of faith, believing. This is the God-ordained means whereby the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It's reckoned to our account. We are viewed as righteous through Christ, and this comes about through simple faith. And furthermore, more importantly, this doctrine is not only taught in Romans 5 verse 1, but it is everywhere emphasized in the Scriptures. And when we look at many of the plain statements of the Bible, it's so clear that justification is indeed by faith. Let me give you a smattering of Scriptures that teach this. John chapter 1 verse 12 The Lord Jesus himself said, But as many as received him, that's Christ himself, to them give he power, that means the right or the privilege, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We go to chapter 3 of John's Gospel. The Lord Jesus there said to Nicodemus from verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's talking about the crucifixion. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When the jailer at Philippi came in crying to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? He heard the answer, Acts 16, 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. In Romans, in the chapter 3, verse 28, the Bible records, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Chapter 4 teaches the same thing in verses 3 and 4. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. 
And then it says this, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Plain statements. And it doesn't finish there. You go over to Galatians. Paul's epistle to the churches at Galatia, chapter 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 3.24 Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the Bible goes on in various places to speak of the same thing. Hebrews 10 and verse 39 records these words, but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Them that believe to the saving of the soul. Here is justifying faith. Do we need any more or any clearer words than these? Can we not just take God at his word and realize that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. The Lord Jesus himself said, He that believeth is saved and is not condemned. Those who believe on him are justified. Those who do not believe on him are damned. That's what Jesus said. Now, let's look at our text very simply under two headings. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to talk about is the definition of saving faith. Saving faith is defined. If we are indeed justified by faith, then we need to know what it is. What is faith? How can we define faith, saving faith? I could do no better than quote the Shorter Catechism in answer number 86. Listen to this. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel, unquote. Let me say it again. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. Now, when you read your Bible, you will find various terms that are used by the Lord to express basically the same thing. For example, you'll read places where it, it speaks about believing, in other places, receiving, in other places, trusting in, etc. But they all mean the same thing. The Catechism uses the phrase there, whereby we rest upon Him alone for salvation. So we could define faith also as a full dependence upon or a leaning upon or an abandoning or a confident hope in Christ. And the Scripture itself in many, many different places 
illustrates saving faith by using a variety of types or figures. Let me just give you some of those. In Isaiah 45, verse 22, the Scripture talks about looking unto the Lord. Let's find that Scripture. Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Look unto me, and be ye saved. So faith is looking to the Lord. That text, by the way, was the text that was used in the conversion of the great sea at Spurgeon. As a young man, he was on his way to church one snowy January in the town of Colchester in the southeastern part of England. And he tried to get to church. He went down this side street to a chapel, which was a gospel preaching place. But the minister, who normally preached there, had trouble getting to the church. He was snowed in, basically couldn't get there. So those that were gathered were waiting for someone to speak. And among the elders that were there who were not used to speaking, there was quite a bit of nervousness. And uh, they were wondering, well, who's going to speak? And none of them wanted to do it. But one man thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have to try to conduct the service. And Spurgeon said he was a man who normally should not be anywhere near a pulpit in terms of his gifts or ability. But that day, he was God's mouthpiece. And he said he came to the text, Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And Spurgeon said he waffled about for several minutes trying to say something about this text to make it more applicable to the people. And he said he sort of reached the end of his tether. And he saw this young man sitting under the gallery. It was Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said he was not used to being addressed individually in church. But that old man said, Young man, you look miserable. And you will continue to be miserable unless you obey the words of my text. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And Spurgeon said he came under tremendous conviction of sin. And he said, that day, I did look. And he said, I took such a look at Christ that I could have looked my eyes away. And he never looked back from that day. The Lord used that as a word in season, a word fitly spoken to challenge his heart. That's what salvation is. That's what faith is. It's a looking to the Lord. Again, you see this in John three fourteen, where Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And what did the people do there in the wilderness? You read about it in Numbers chapter 31, verse 8. They looked to that brazen serpent. And as they looked to that serpent, they were healed. And Jesus applied that to himself and said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth on him, it means looks to him, will not perish, but have eternal life. 
Faith is looking to Christ. Then we read already, John 1.12, as many as received him. That's what salvation is. That's what faith is. It's receiving Christ. In John chapter 6, Jesus said that whoso believeth on me will never hunger and he will never thirst. And so as he talks about eating and drinking of his flesh and of his blood, he's talking about faith. That's what faith is. Faith is an eating and a drinking. That's why the Bible says in another place, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. That's what salvation is. That's what faith is. It's eating of Christ. It's tasting of Christ by faith. And again, Jesus talks about he that cometh to me. One of my favorite texts in all the Bible is John six thirty-seven. Ever since I came to the Lord as a child, I've had different times in my life when I have doubted my salvation. Times when I was really distressed, thinking that I may not be saved. And I keep going back to John six thirty-seven: All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. You come to the Lord, he will not turn you away. So what is salvation? What is faith? It's coming to Christ. And then in Hebrews 6 verse 18, it talks about fleeing for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that's set before us. That's what salvation is. That's what faith is. It's a fleeing to Christ. It's running away from every other hope and laying hold upon him alone. All of these that I've just mentioned are representations of what faith really is. But the main thing is it incorporates trust and belief. Faith is a total reliance upon the Lord Jesus for salvation. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he began his epistle by referring to their experience of salvation. He went on to talk about it further in the second chapter. But in the first chapter, Ephesians 1 and verses 12 and 13, he said that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. There it is trusted in Christ, in whom he said, ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So trusting and believing are the same thing. That's what faith is. So when we're talking about defining faith, We have to understand that the faith which saves us or which receives salvation more accurately is just a simple act of trust, which of course leads on to a life of faith because we walk by faith, not by sight. We continue to live by faith. Yet as a justifying act, God saves a sinner when that sinner believes and rests upon and relies upon the Savior alone. Have you done that? Can you say today, I'm depending on Christ alone? This was the trust of Abraham. Romans 4 verse 3 speaks about that. Faith was the means of his salvation. And all who would be justified must come as Abraham came. And the closing verses of Romans 4 speak to that where he believed and it was imputed to him. For righteousness. That doctrine, by the way, is further expounded in Galatians chapter 3. And it really culminates in these words of verse 26. 
For you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. That's how you become a child of God. If you've never had faith and trust in Christ, you are not a saved person. For we are saved through faith alone. It is not, as one preacher said, the meritorious cause of salvation. There's no merit in your faith. But it is the instrumental cause. That's what God uses in order that you would obtain salvation. To be a Christian, you must believe on him. We are justified by faith. We cannot be justified by works. Saving faith is defined in the Scripture. There are many other things I could say about this, but that's the gist of it. Salvation incorporates trust and belief, total reliance upon the Lord Jesus. How do you know that you're saved? I have come to Christ. I have believed on him. I'm resting upon his finished work. As one of our hymns puts it, while others rest on good works or opinions if they may, hallelujah, I'm depending on the blood. From saving faith defined, we want to think about saving faith displayed. How or where is faith displayed? Where does it come from? This is a really important question. Because faith is often regarded, even by some preachers, as that which all men possess. Everybody has the the potential to believe. It's just a matter of acting it out. Therefore, we may use at any time of our choosing that power that God has given us. The problem with that is it's not true. Because we've lost any power to seek after God since the fall. That's what the fall of man means. My preacher used to say, when Adam fell in the garden, he didn't just injure his little toe. He died so that we're all in dead and trespasses and sins. We're not just injured. We're not just comatose. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We need to be quickened. We need to be made alive. You see, that power that we had to seek after God, which Adam had, he lost that at the fall. So that the Bible now says, there is none that seeketh after God. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. There's a matter of inability right there. No man can come. You know, people have this idea, preachers sometimes preach it, it's almost as if salvation is like a water faucet. You can turn it on and off as you desire and as you please. This is not true. Salvation is of the Lord. Faith, therefore, is of the Lord. Paul said to the Thessalonians, all men have not faith. You see, the faith that saves us is not natural. It's supernatural. Ephesians 2 verse 8 tells us that it is the gift of God. Let's not miss that. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. What not of yourselves? Faith. It is the gift of God. Philippians 1.29 tells us it is given you to believe. So those who have faith in Christ 
have got something more than just an intellectual understanding of the facts of the gospel. It's not just that they've given mental assent to the facts of the gospel, but those that are saved, those who have faith in Christ, have a true and personal reliance upon the person and work of Christ. Let's think about this scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3. It's a really important statement of truth. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse number 3. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And notice that this. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now, it doesn't mean that somebody can't just articulate those words. It means that no one can actually say that the Lord is theirs personally, that He is their Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not just an intellectual understanding of the facts of the gospel, i.e., there was a person called Jesus, he lived a holy life, he died on the cross, he rose again, he went to heaven to intercede, he's coming back again. Those are the facts of the gospel. But you can know all of that and not be saved. The devil knows the gospel inside out and back to front. But he's not saved. It's not just a matter of knowing the the facts as they are, but it involves a true personal reliance upon the person of Christ. You have to come to Him, and you have to look to Him, and you have to rest upon Him, and you have to depend upon Him alone for salvation, not anything else. It's not Christ plus this, not Christ plus that. It's Christ plus nothing that saves you. Jesus alone can bring salvation. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 12, 3. If no man can say that Jesus is his own personal Lord, that's what it means, but by the Holy Ghost, that means if I am resting in Christ's work on my behalf, it's God the Holy Ghost who has given me that saving trust. It's the Holy Spirit that's worked that in me to cause me to trust in him in that way. This is why, as I often emphasize, believers pray for souls. Why do we pray to God to do something in their hearts if we think they can do it themselves? If I think a person can turn to the Lord at any time he wants, why would I pray for him? I'm asking God to do something that he's already given him the power to do. But the problem is that's not the case. God must give him that power. That's why we must pray for souls. Because men and women will never, and that's what the Bible teaches, they will never seek after God. That's what Romans chapter 3 tells us. Let's look at it again. It's so clear. Romans chapter 3 from verse 10. This is a quotation from the Old Testament from the Psalms. Psalm 14, in fact. As it is written, Paul liked to quote the Scriptures, there is none righteous No, not one. He's emphasizing it there. There's none. And you know the word none is a contraction of two words. It means not one. So he emphasizes it there. There is none righteous. No, not one. 
None. There's nobody who's righteous. That's the first thing. And then he says in verse 11, there is none that understandeth. So there's nobody that, by themselves that understands the gospel. And then here's what he says, there is none that seeketh after God. And then in verse 12, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none that seeketh after God. One of our hymns speaks of this so very, very well. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. See, I would have never sought the Lord even though he commanded me to. All over the Bible, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. It's all over the Bible. Seek, seek, seek. And yet people will not seek unless they're first turned in that way by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit. The parable of the lost sheep. Luke chapter 15. Do you read anywhere in that parable that that lost sheep was out looking for the shepherd? Do you read that anywhere there? I don't read that. What I read is that the sheep went astray, that the sheep was lost, and that the shepherd sought after the sheep. This is consistent with all the doctrine that's taught in the Bible about salvation. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. They don't seek after him. He seeks after them. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, he says, I will seek out my own sheep. The Lord does the seeking. The shepherd goes after the sheep. He's the one that brings them in. Otherwise, they would never come in. They would never be saved if he didn't seek after them. So if I'm resting in the work of Christ for me today, it's God who has given me that saving trust. It's the Lord who has convinced me of the truth of the gospel, but it's also the Lord who has enabled me to rest my all upon Christ who has set forth in the gospel. He has enabled me to look to him. Now, it's here that we have to be very careful because there are preachers who sometimes emphasize so much the work of the Spirit that they make the Spirit of God the object of a sinner's trust. In other words, they, they make people look toward the Holy Spirit instead of looking toward the work of Christ. And let me be very clear. It is the job, it is the task of the Spirit of God to testify to Christ and his work. The Holy Spirit always draws attention to Jesus. He always puts our attention on Christ. Didn't Jesus say that? He shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself per se. He draws attention to the work of Christ that I might trust in his work. He always points the sinner in the direction of the cross. Now, in connection with that is the doctrine of regeneration. It is the work of the Spirit in regeneration that leads us to the cross. A sinner cannot create his own faith. I don't care how long and hard he thinks about it. He will not be able to manufacture his own trust. Those who believe 
are those whom the Spirit of God has quickened. He's made them alive, Ephesians 2 verse 1, and he's caused them to embrace the Christ who is freely offered in the gospel. Now, I preach you must be born again. But to preach only about the work of the Holy Spirit in creating faith in a sinner's heart is to fall short. You know why? Because that's not the full gospel. The gospel is not believe in regeneration and thou shalt be saved. The gospel is not believe in the new birth and thou shalt be saved. The gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And it's the new birth that enables you to do that. Let's get it right. There's no one who ever asked to be born. You go to any maternity unit and look at all those lovely little babies there. There's not a single one of them that asked to be born. Not one of them. Not one of them had any part in their own conception. Not one of them had any part in coming to life. That's outside of their control. There they are. They're born. But they had nothing to do with it. So preachers tell their congregations to believe on Jesus and you'll be born again. No, that's not the, that's not the gospel. The gospel is if you're born again, you'll believe on Jesus. The new birth, the new birth results in believing. It's not the other way around. How do you know that? Well, because the Bible says it. Go back to John chapter 1. And notice carefully that verse 12 is accompanied by verse 13. Strange that, isn't it? But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, watch it, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. They didn't get born again because of free will, but of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born of God. This is the order in salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is evidence of the Spirit's work. Because you can't believe without the Spirit's work. But it is His work to have you to rest upon the finished work of Christ. We sing that hymn, don't we? But I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. That's a wonderful hymn. Part of that hymn says this, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him, but I know whom I have believed. See, the Holy Spirit convinces you of sin, and then He creates faith in your heart. So regeneration, the new birth, being born again, and faith belong together. And just like we say in a marriage, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. You notice carefully in John chapter 3, when the Lord preached to Nicodemus, he taught the necessity of regeneration. That's what the early part of the chapter is all about. You must be born again. 
George Whitfield, the evangelist, was once asked, Mr. Whitfield, why do you preach so often on you must be born again? Because he preached some 18,000 times in his ministry, of which about 3,000 were on the text. John 3, verse 8. That's like one-sixth of his sermons. One in six sermons was on you must be born again. And so he was asked, why do, why do you preach so much on you must be born again? And Whitfield said to the man, because, sir, you must be born again. That's the reason. It's a necessity. But, not, but notice this. When the Lord expounded the doctrine of regeneration, he didn't stop there. Because he went on to speak about believing on him. He went on to speak about faith. He went on to speak about God sending his Son into the world, and that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Culminating even in the words at the end of the chapter, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's believing. Those who are born again are those that believe. It's so important that we get this. Christ did not only preach the necessity of being born again, but he linked it inextricably with the necessity of believing and trusting in Christ's saving work at the cross. That's where we must look. Because you can look into your own heart and you try to find their evidence that you've been born again. You're not going to find it. You will not find it. You start thinking about, I wonder if I've been born again. You look into your own heart, and all you see there is what you find in other people's hearts. Sin and backsliding and failure and departure from God. I can't look into my own heart and find their evidence that I've been born again. That is something that appears in the life, yes. But the best way to discover if you've been born again is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him. Trust in him. Lean upon him. If that's your ticket for heaven, so to speak, that's Christ's work. You're presenting that to the Father. Lord, this is why you should let me into heaven, because I'm depending on his work. That's how you know you're saved. I have to believe and I have to trust in his saving work at the cross. That's what regeneration produces. As a preacher, I have to emphasize the necessity of coming to Christ, calling upon Christ, closing in with Christ in his offer of mercy. Because you see, in, in regeneration, in the new birth, the Spirit's work, the sinner is passive. Just like that baby that's born is passive. There's nothing to do with it. But he is very active in exercising faith toward Jesus Christ. That's something that God gives to you. Trust in him. Now, the distinction, the distinction I've made between the new birth and believing is theological only. It would be entirely wrong to imagine that there's some sort of an order of time between the quickening of the Spirit and the first sign of that new life, which is saving faith. There are some communions of Christians that teach that. And I have people floundering around for years on end uh, perhaps they're regenerate, but they're not believers. I don't believe in that. Because the order is certainly regeneration, quickening, and then believing. 
But along with John Calvin and other great expositors, I believe it's an order of nature, what they call the ordo salutis, but it's not an order of time. It's not an order of time. Think of it like this. Can a baby be alive and not breathe? Of course, the, the evidence that a child is alive is that it's breathing. I remember hearing that first cry from both of my daughters when they got smacked on the, on the hindquarters. I remember it very well. Boy, that was, such a, that was such a great sound. That's such a lovely sound, and the mothers will concur with that because that baby's alive. There's new life there. How do you know? Because the baby's crying. That's the evidence of it. And so we have here the order, regeneration, quickening, and then believing. The baby's alive and it breathes and it shows evidence that it's alive because it cries and it wants to be fed. See, where there's life, there's the breath, which is the first sign of life. If there's no life, there's no breath. If there's no breath, there's no life. The great Scottish uh, expositor James Buchanan put it like this. Regeneration, the new birth, and justification are simultaneous. And no man is justified who is not renewed, nor is any man renewed who is not also and immediately justified. Yes, there is a work of the Spirit prior to regeneration. It's called conviction of sin. But not all of those who are convicted are then subsequently born again. There are many people who are convicted and they never get saved. But there is also in the Lord's people an ongoing work of the Spirit after they've been born again. And that work is known as sanctification, where we grow in the Lord's grace. But at the moment of regeneration, when the Lord quickens you by His Spirit, there is a corresponding faith in Christ which lays hold upon his justifying righteousness. Robert Louis Dabney, great Southern theologian, said, quote, We do not make a difference in the order of time between regeneration and justification by faith. In this sense, the sinner is justified when he is regenerated and regenerated when he's justified. At the application of redemption, God justifies in the righteousness of another in order that he might consistently bless with regeneration and all other graces. And he regenerates in order that the sinner may be enabled to embrace that righteousness. See, it's the quickened soul that lays hold of Christ. Dabney said, in time, they are simultaneous. In source, both are gracious. But in the order of production, the sinner is enabled to believe by being regenerated, not vice versa. There are some biblical illustrations we could give of this. Let me show you what happened in Matthew chapter 10. It is an illustration. It's a picture, but it's a very good one. In Matthew 12, from verse 10... The Bible says, And behold, there was a man, this is in the synagogue, which had his hand withered. It was a useless hand. Whatever had happened to him, it couldn't be used. 
And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heed on, on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? If it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much, then, is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it's lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. And then watch this, verse 13. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. Now, when you think about it, the Lord Jesus was asking this man to do something that he didn't have the power to do. He had a withered hand. He couldn't use it. He couldn't stretch it out. That's the, that's the, the reality. He couldn't stretch it out. But Jesus said to him, stretch out your hand. Now, why would the Lord tell him to do something he was not able to do? That's a bit like a preacher telling someone who's dead in sins to trust in Christ. Why would you tell dead sinners to come to Christ when they're dead? That's the argument. Did the man object to Jesus? Look, I have to have my hand healed first, and then I'll stretch it forth? No, because with the command of Christ, there went forth the power to obey Christ's word. The man didn't even think about it, just stretched forth his hand, even though prior to that he was unable to do it. So in calling sinners to believe, to calling sinners to trust in Christ, they must concern themselves only with the command of God, nothing else. God tells me to come to him, so I must come to him. And in seeking to come to Christ, you're going to be miraculously enabled to do it. The Lion of Judah shall break every chain and give us the victory again and again. In that hymn it says, Christ will support you in coming to him. Christ will support you in coming to him. In other words, he will miraculously enable you to come to him. Now you think about Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus was not only dead, he had been dead for four days. His body had not been embalmed. You know how you know that? Because Mary had broken the alabaster box with the ointment and poured it on Jesus' head. That which she had kept, she kept it back against the burial of Lazarus. She actually used it for the burial of Christ in advance. So Lazarus was not embalmed. So no wonder they said, Lord, by this time he stinketh. His body's already begun to decompose. He's stinking, Lord. What would you talk about bringing him out of the tomb for? But of course the Lord said, Lazarus, come forth. Some commentators have offered the view, and I agree with it. If the Lord had not prefaced the words come forth with the word Lazarus, the whole graveyard would have risen. They all would have risen if he said, come forth. But he didn't. He, he honed in on Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. And he was alive. Next chapter sees him at, at the supper table. People must have wondered about that. Boy, I was at his funeral and now we're having dinner with him. Amazing. Now think about this. Was there some length of time between Christ calling Lazarus and Lazarus coming forth 
alive. No, there was no time between those two. It happened immediately. Life was given right there, instantly. And therefore, he could no longer stay in the place of the dead. He came right away to life. So I would say to anyone who's not saved, let nothing keep you from Christ, not even the excuse of your inability. I remember talking to a fellow in Scotland, and he knew the doctrines of grace inside out and back to front, and he told me that he couldn't come to Christ because he was dead in sins. I said to him, you know what your problem is, sir? You won't come to Christ. That's your problem. You won't come to Christ. Don't be using your inability as some sort of an excuse because that will not wash on the day of judgment. You were commanded to come. And if you do come to him, he'll enable you to come. He'll give you life. It's unbelief and not your inability that will damn your soul. And really, it's your unbelief that is your inability. That's what makes you unable to come. It's your natural unbelief. People should never blame the Holy Spirit for the fact that they're still in their sins. Oh, he hasn't quickened me yet. He hasn't convicted me yet. I haven't felt this. I haven't felt that. I haven't felt the other thing. The Bible gives no excuse for remaining away from Christ. But rather, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. There are no future promises in the Bible. Next week, you'll have mercy. You never read that in the Scripture. It's always today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Is there one today, and you've never yet done that? Maybe somebody watching on line today. You're religious. You go to church. You listen to sermons. You read your Bible. But you've never come to Christ. You've never closed in with his offer of mercy. Can I just say to you today, come today, come now. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Why are you holding back? What is there? What's the reason why you haven't come to Christ? He has said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come to him today? If you do, that is saving faith. Because he will save you. He will bring you to himself. May he do that for his name's sake. Amen.